Our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past and present, and those that earn that tremendous honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that was never ceded. We also acknowledge that they have accumulated a great debt of ancient wisdom from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before it land was stolen. And then finally, we cannot hope to have any form of climate justice without justice for our First Nations brothers and sisters. Ten years ago, I was sharing a taxi. We were driving from the hotel to a conference center and I was sitting next to an American diplomat and we were talking about how to solve this climate crisis, which we were going to talk about at the conference. And he said, I'm sorry, I have to disappoint you here because the world is not going to fix this problem until the day when the damage and the destruction becomes so unbearable and when everyone can see it with their own eyes what's going on. But when is that going to happen? Well, maybe in 10 years time, he said, and that's now. You know, and I said, but by then it'll be too late. We need to do it now. I promise you, he said, nothing is going to happen until people begin to actually feel the pain. And in the light of that, hey, this is what we've been waiting for. Or at least that's what you can say. The American diplomat must have been waiting for this uh, in those 10 years that have gone ever since we had that conversation in a taxi in 2013. The devastation has finally arrived. It's visible and it's scary. I mean, what destruction we're seeing, there, especially from Beijing, beyond anything I have seen on, on TV, you know, with all the cars piling up in the flood, the graphs of the temperatures around the world, the sea, the ice, it's going nuts and people are getting killed in the process. So the good news in a way is that this is maybe that moment where people will begin to say, hmm, maybe we should do something about this. And it's not too late. That's what the Sustainable Hour is all about. It's not too late. Let's get active. Let's do something. There's a lot happening and we'll talk about it today. But first, we need to hear about what's been happening around the world. Over to the Global Outlook, Colin Market, OAM, what do you have for us today? Oh, thank you, Mick. Yes, and I should point out, too, that the uh, pictures you've been seeing of Beijing and the floods in Beijing, they diverted the floods, and that has completely devastated a city of 700,000 people called Zhuzhou. But I'll start now, if I can. First up, there are still fires burning in North America and Southern Europe. There are still heat waves throughout Europe and the US, and there's ongoing drought in the Horn of Africa and floods through China and Asia. But I report on those weekly, as you know. So today, I'm going to take a look at the extremes of our planet, the poles, because there's been several reports this week about them, and I thought it's... Uh, Rather than go over old ground, I would cover those. 
So our roundup this week begins in San Francisco, where PLOS Science Magazine published a new study from the Arctic and the Antarctic, where scientists have long drilled holes into the permafrost to study our planet's past. They're now finding that what was long frozen is beginning to thaw. Now, this is releasing bacteria and viruses that have been deep frozen for hundreds of thousands of years. And as the permafrost thaws, so too do these cells. And the scientists' experiments have found that some ancient species could spring back to life and begin infecting anew. In other words, there is every possibility that there's a COVID that occurred in the past and could thaw out, or a great plague, or something like that. We don't know. This is rare, said Corey Bradshaw, who is a professor of global ecology and part of the team that published the paper. All it takes is one of them, and there are so many of them. This is not sci-fi, this is real. And then the team used computers to simulate the release of ancient pathogens into a modern environment. 99% of the time, the ancient virus would quickly vanish. But about one time in every hundred, the released virus would find a susceptible host. And this could cause major damage to the ecosystem, basically the loss of a species. The paper warned that the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of our globe. Parts of the top layer of permafrost have already started thawing. But there is a saving clause in the paper. It says that while the risk of a permafrost virus release is plausible, it's extremely low. A virus would need to uh, leave permafrost and quickly encounter a susceptible host, which is unlikely given their remote locations. But it's a climate crisis that nobody had predicted. And as such, it gives pause to thought about how many other unforeseen risks we will come across as our world warms up. Meanwhile, The Guardian published leaked documents that reveal budget cutbacks from the federal government mean that two of Australia's Antarctic research stations, Mawson and Davis, won't be fully staffed during the upcoming summer season, which is the peak science study period. Six scientists won't travel to Davis or Mawson to monitor Antarctic breeding seabirds, with Australia potentially um, falling short of its international obligations to collect data, manage the population and monitor avian flu. The article says that international lawyers and environmentalists have warned the research cuts will damage Australia's worldwide science reputation and therefore our diplomatic influence. Other studies that won't be supported due to budget restraints include surveys of sea ice thickness and observations of Antarctic landfast sea ice. The Australian Antarctic Division is searching for $25 million in savings this year, largely due to an overspend caused by the pandemic. That stopped almost all research on the continent and technical issues with Australia's new icebreaker vessel that forced the division to charter replacement supply vessels. They've used up the $25 million on that, so now they're saving it 
by cutting back on science. And all this comes amid new data from South America, which shows Antarctic sea ice is growing at its lowest rate in recorded history, with the continent now missing a huge chunk of sea ice the size of Argentina. And it should have been growing because it's winter. Now, we're coming to the end of the winter period. The sea ice should have been growing and it's actually shrinking. It's lost an Argentina-sized chunk. The ice failed to return during the Antarctic winter after reaching a record low minimum extent last southern summer. Antarctic sea ice plays a particularly important role in controlling ocean currents. It's believed it acts as a buffer that provides floating ice shelves and glaciers from collapsing, which add to global sea levels. And a final report was released last weekend by the UN's World Meteorological Office. It shows that global sea surface temperatures reached record highs in May, June and July this year, due partly to the onset of the El Nino weather event. And it's like that's likely to give us an Australian summer of extremes. Basically, what they're saying is that the, what's happening to the poles now is going to give us even worse climate change problems than we expected. And that cold comfort ends a polarizing roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Phil Evans. Uh, when I first met Phil, he was working at Friends of the Earth in Nam, in Melbourne. The last 18 months or so, Phil's been on a huge road trip around the country. During that time, he's, uh, well, he's an activist himself, always was, always will be, I imagine. Uh, and he, he's director of a small company it's called Rhizomatic, uh, and it's working with progressive groups to turbocharge their uh, digital comms. And recently, Phil became a host of the long-running Earth Matters program on Radio National. Phil, is that, is that correct? <laughs> Not quite Radio National yet. <laughs> But I'll aim high. <laughs> okay. Phil, tell us your story. What's up front for you at the moment? Sure. Thanks, Tony. And, yeah, it's great to be on the show. Um, it's uh, really good to hear fellow activists chewing the fat and having ideas with each other about how to do these sorts of things. Um, and today, like, I really wanted to share a love letter to my fellow activists because, um, for me, a part of um, the journey that you were describing, Tony, is about me refinding a my passion for uh, what actually got me into activism and climate activism in in particular. Um, B acknowledging that rest is radical and a huge part of the solution um, that we uh, seek to implement into this planet, rather than like living in that capitalist paradigm of busy, busy, busy work, work, work. Um, and also, you know, just some things that we can do for each other in these crazy hectic times where um, passions run high. Um, there are so many different ways to approach this very complex idea of climate change and how to actually find the solutions to it. And of course, we're going to disagree along the way. So how we can talk about that as well. So I wanted to start with the idea that rest really is radical. And 
what we're doing in activism is really about a marathon and not a sprint. So um, while we talk about um, things in terms of urgency and emergency, it is really important to think about the way that you approach it uh, from a sustainable perspective and not just sustainability for the planet, but for you, which is actually a part of the planet as well. So, you know, like for me, like I like to think that humans are an integral part of the natural systems. And one of the reasons that I subscribe to environmental justice perspective or the idea that environmental and social justice issues are intrinsically linked is because we are ourselves a part of nature. So I know the Enlightenment likes to generally say that uh, we should uh, tame and adapt and, and modify natural systems, but we have to realise that we're part of it. And I'm not going to go too deep into that because that's a whole probably another discussion itself. But what I do know from working um, for many years, as you're saying, Tony, um, I've been an activist for um, well over about 15 or so years now, have been um, on the front lines in blockades, spent a year living in a tent in a, um, protecting a forest. I um, have been many times in court, <laughs> arrested many times myself, but also worked in the behind the scenes as well. And what I constantly see is people coming into the movement, running hard and then leaving. And generally that's happening in about a two year cycle where people leave. And it's because I think we're working unsustainably. Um, here I really want to like do a shout out to people who are leaders in their movements and say, you need to demonstrate how to work normally. <laughs> like, you know, it's really easy to be stuck in that emergency urgency loop where we overwork and we work, you know, 30 hour days, even though there's 24 hours in it, and 15 day weeks, and then there's only seven. But what we do is we set this normalization of overworking, which is actually just continuing the burnout cycle. Because when young people are coming in or new people to the movement, they're seeing these leaders who are celebrated as heroes and and called machines and, oh, how do they get so much work done? But they're demonstrating how to burn out quickly. And I'm not having a go at anyone here because I've definitely been that person and I've definitely celebrated people who overwork, but we need to start to stop normalizing that overwork cycle. Um, secondly, around that sort of thing, I, I firmly believe that we need to talk more about the renewal and the rotation of key figures within movements. Um, it's really easy for um, leadership to be entrenched and become a central part, and that can start to create cults of personalities that puts undue pressure on very ordinary people. We're all ordinary people, whether we like it or not, um, and we all have our breaking limits. And a big part of that, uh, which is thankfully becoming more and more normalised, is the idea of mentoring and buddying up with people to teach each other new skills as we move forward. So um, a key principle of community organising that I like to think about, um, which is a kind of model of organising that I like to think about, is that you should always be working yourself out of the job. So in a way, like as you are doing your activism, you're trying to find more and more people that replace what you do. And not only is that good for movement building because you're bringing more people in, but you're finding them a sense of purpose. So they're more likely to stick around, but you're also creating challenge and interest for yourself. So you're, fine, you're eventually going to run out of the things that you would usually do because other people are now doing it and be uh, free and available to move on to new and exciting challenges. This also brings fresh ideas and perspectives into movements so we don't become predictable and, you know, like overly easy to predict what happens next. Um, it's also important to think about that in terms of when you're being an ally. So I know um, 
we all like to think a lot more intersectionally now and think about how First Nations issues intersect with climate issues, how gender intersects with climate issues, um, et cetera, et cetera. So being an ally is really important. And there was a really interesting paper published just over the weekend that was looking at um, what effective allyship uh, was actually about. I think uh, Jaron Nyland was one of the publishers, if you uh, want to have a look at the, um, the information, and I'm sure I can give you a link to it. Um, anyway, what that found is that um, people who are the um, direct affected people value allyship where there is a personal cost to it. So um, performative action is not really valued as much as like real action where you A, weaponize your privilege and then B, uh, find yourself actually like with a cost to it. So that can be whether a reputational cost, um, having like personal arguments that might be getting arrested um, on behalf of a, an issue that maybe doesn't directly affect you, but that is really important, but it also says that you can't do that forever. So um, for me, that looked like, I used to do a lot of direct action, as I was saying, and blockading, I've been arrested many times and spent many, many years in court proceedings and things like that, but it is exhausting. And thank God this is radio, because you can't see the little patch of gray hair at the front of my uh, um, hair that I call Wando, which was the name of the camp that I lived at for a while because it is so stressful doing that work. So now I found myself, I rotated to the background and now I wanna help people automate their digital communications and databasing systems and support other people with part-time roles in order to be able to do that frontline action as well, whilst also learning new skills so they can renew and find somewhere else later. So always building my activism into what I'm doing. With all that experience that you have, Phil, it sounded to me like, and this was how it was expressed also in the mainstream media in the week that has just gone, that some climate activists crossed a line this week. And the line was that they started to move their activities away from the street and into people's homes. The CEOs of fossil fuel companies and the prime ministers. And apparently the first time that this happened was during COVID where people were protesting against, uh, you know, what the government was doing, and they went to the PM's house, for instance, here in Australia. Um, but now the climate activists have taken that step, and there seems to be a lot of uh, discussion. Is this a good idea or not? What's your take on this? Oh, that's an interesting one. I mean, politics is personal. If people are prepared to put themselves at the front line of decision-making and things like that, in particular politicians, then they can expect that there will be um, people who will show up and disagree with them. And that might happen in different places. I personally probably wouldn't go to uh, someone's school or something or target people's children and things like that. So I think, you know, like, uh, I mean, as we've seen, um, I remember years ago when Philip Ruddock's daughter was uh, a key activist protesting the decisions that her father was making around refugees. So you can't presume that the apple falls right next to the tree. Often it falls uh, further and rolls even further away. Mm. So, you know, like, I think as long as that, that line of respecting people's family life is kept, and in particular, I mean, we saw some really hideous threats made around COVID um, by some activists uh, threatening actual, like, the safety of, of people. I mean, I'm a firm believer in nonviolence, so I don't think we need to go down that path. And it can be um, guilty on either side. I do remember years ago, oh, what it must have been about 2009, the... Um, uh, shut down Hazelwood, replace it with renewable energy campaign. And someone released a Earthverse uh, um, message. Oh, well, you know, anyone can release a, a message as Earthverse, but we won't go into that. But the, um, and that was actually threatening the CEO of, I think it was Energy Australia, who were running um, 
uh, Hazelwood at the time. And I, I don't agree with that sort of action, but I, I do think that like when public figures put themselves out there, they can expect that they need to stand behind their decisions. And if they're embarrassed by them, then that's for them to change their mind about. What I miss in that discussion is the perspective, because it's as if nobody can see what's coming. There has in history, you know, we've seen Rote Armee Fraktion, uh, some terrorists that uh, held people hostage in an Olympic stadium back in the 70s. We've seen all sorts of things where guns and violence and death is involved. So you could say that in that perspective, it's a little bit harmless just to go to a PM and, and drape the house in black, as they did in the UK last week. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, and you've got to like think about the decisions that they're making are actually having like direct, violent, um, often deadly consequences on people around the world as well. Oh, and, nice. I'm not, and I'm not saying like, you know, that, uh, you know, like, I mean, I personally believe in nonviolence and I hope that um, people maintain a nonviolent perspective. But, you know, when, when people are faced with death, destruction and, and, you know, the catastrophic things that are happening around the world, you know, like, you take the perspective of like, well, what will be the reaction of that? And we can't presume that always people will be living in a civilised way, way to do it. And, you know, always one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And, you know, and it is a matter of perspective of where you go, even right back to, you know, some of those perspectives around, you know, like the Munich games and things like that, you know, people were dispossessed from their lands. And, you know, and that, that's what happens when people are put into desperate situations is desperate measures can happen as well. But you're right, there is a huge difference between that and, you know, um, the detractors against um, climate action and the detractors against social justice issues often use security frame as an excuse or um, try to suggest that there is a slippery slope um, between, you know, like um, actions that uh, break the law and those of terrorism. We've seen that through rafts of legislation pushed through state parliaments around the idea to silence dissent and also um, further illegalise protest action, you know, and, you know, the, the civil disobedience movement knows when it's breaking the laws because those laws are usually not just and might be around like private property or something like that, which I could go into, but... You know, like um, there, there's a there's a huge difference between um, trespassing, um, criminal damage, and also there's a huge difference between that and violence. Property is not a human life; it is not an animal life. So therefore, I wouldn't call it violent. It's quite interesting in Perth last week when the the CEO of uh, Woodside, I think, was the company uh, who want to unleash a carbon bomb, essentially. Uh, where the CEO there was uh, targeted by uh, nonviolent activists and there were police there waiting for them and they, they blew it up as if it was a, uh, a terrorist attack on her house. And the people had no intention of, of doing that, just wanted to highlight this is where this woman lives. Um, she's faceless. She's ahead of a company that is going to destroy property and, um, People are going to die as a result of that. Uh, you know, the science is clear on it. And, yeah, the, just the way it's it's blown up as if they're the terrorists. And they, they ask the question, well, who's, you know, is, is the person inside this house who's who's part of a, a, a company that's making decisions that is going to lead to the death of who knows how many people? Who's, like, who's a real criminal? But the media plays it at these terrorists were attacking this this poor woman's privacy. It's not 
depicted fairly, and I guess I'm stupid to uh, expect it to be depicted fairly in the media, but that I now understand fully, and I, I probably would have been happy to be part of of going to her place and and not damaging anything necessarily, but just saying this this woman lives here. Um, yeah, because everything else we've tried and they keep making these decisions unchallenged. Mm, absolutely. And you never hear that perspective then put out when you see a corporate entity enter into, you know, a sacred site and destroy it and the catastrophic effects that that has on people. Now, I'm not an Aboriginal First Nations person. I don't seek to speak on behalf of people, but I am an Australian who sees that happen. And that's a part of the shared rich cultural history of this land that um, I now inhabit. And I am outraged and I, I feel like disgusted and and shocked when I see the destruction of places like that. And you said that was Woodside, right, um, Tony, who was being targeted there. I mean, you know, like, they hardly got their hands clean in terms of, you know, the destruction of sacred sites or the the destruction of natural areas. I mean, the idea of like building gas hubs in the middle of, uh, you know, like whale breeding areas, leaving their wreckages behind to um to rot in the ocean. You know, like if, where's the outrage? You know, who's there to speak on behalf of nature? And you know, and as we face this time of looking at like. How are we going to um, encourage the voice, tell truth and find treaty with First Nations people as outlined by the Uluru Statement and through decades and decades of activism, particularly around treaty and truth, then, you know, like, who is there to speak on behalf of, of, of the First Nations people to do? I see WA is about to scrap their um, Aboriginal heritage laws. It's, it's all just a travesty. And this is a, a storm in a teacup and then like and a mountain out of a molehill out of one person, one individual feeling uncomfortable for a moment while the genocide, a cultural genocide at least, continues in this country from a war that still hasn't been acknowledged and hasn't ended via a treaty process. Yeah, I think people listening to this will have a much, or hopefully will have a much greater understanding and, and be less judgmental about people who take these stands because really everything else has been tried and has failed and yeah as as mick referred to before like there's never been so many extreme weather events happening at the same time in so many different places uh, uh since july really it, it's all ramped up since since then mm. there is another perspective and i love that energy you provide here phil which is the positive outcome of what it means to be an activist, uh, it doesn't just mean burnout. It actually also means, as you mentioned, finding purpose. And last week we heard uh, there was a psychologist on ABC who talked about that people who work in the climate movement, in a way you could say, feel a lot better about what's going on because they're being active, but also because they are together with others. They're sharing that and they're finding a common purpose in what they're doing. And there's evidence scientifically. I have an article from 2017 from New Scientist that summarizes that people with greater sense of purpose live longer, sleep better, have better sex. Well, there, you, there you go. And that's all for free. All you got to do is, you know, find purpose. 
Well, that's a great ad to go and have sex with an activist today. <laughs> they probably need a bit of a, a bit of relief, and they could probably use the company. But um, and, and it does hit a really important point as well around sustainable activism, which is we need to stop attacking each other um, and like build community and realize that disagreeing is great. And I don't know about you, but um, I'm a big fan of democracy. It may be the least worst system that we got and maybe liberal democracy and capitalism is a whole nother conversation but i do love disagreement and i love finding compromise and i love debating with people so let's practice doing that stop using the weapons that we use against our enemy on each other let's uh um turn our attention to the the bigger fights on the outside that we need to be winning um rather than turning on each other and you know like really remember that you know, it's important to find that balance between heart and mind because facts are important, but your emotions and um, the passion that you find is really important as well. And it's a fine line to find between heart and mind, um, but often one can lead to blindness in the other. So it's really good to um, practice that. And remember, we'll cancel people when they deserve it. And, you know, like remember to call people in before you call them out. You know, you might disagree with their tactics or their approach, but, you know, like, private message before you make that social media post. Mm, fantastic. And there is actually a, a meeting at the city town hall in Melbourne on the 9th of September with the title Stepping Up Together. And with the purpose exactly as you describe it there, Phil, about all the different climate groups finding some common ground, listening to the many ideas that are floating around and then finding a way to collaborate more. Walk through the parks, the streets where I live. They bustle with life and the joys they give. Air that is fresh, where lungs can sing. Sky that is clear in Melbourne. And Beijing where we drew power from the sun Harvest the wind Cities are quiet except for birds And the hum of bees' wings People are working Cafes buzzing and full Travel is easy by bike Something electric and cool Democracy's working But not just for a few Justice is real for the poorest And that's the common use Corporations value The needs of the earth and innovators safeguarding resources for all their worth I imagine the world we could be a chance to write a future history let's imagine the world That is clear Living can be better in the future Than it is
and it is here. Our next guest is Professor Leanne Wiseman. As um, all our guests, they're working on solutions. Leanne, um, she's a fellow of the Australian Research Council. She works at Griffith University and she's chair of the Oz Repair Network. All right, so we'll, we'll do a little pivot here. And Leanne, I understand you're a professor in intellectual property and your passion, though, is to allow a situation or work towards a situation where we can repair things that we buy when they break down or need repairing, whereas at the moment it's we can't do that really. So tell us all about it, your work. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much for having me on the Sustainable Hour. It's a great opportunity and so inspirational to hear um, the work that Phil is doing. I probably come from a different side of kind of attacking um, and trying to work on climate change issues um, from the waste perspective. Um, as you said, I'm a professor of intellectual property law and you kind of think, well, how does that fit into to climate change? But for a long time I've worked with our farmers in Australian agriculture about the digitalisation that happened on farms. So our tractors have got software in them now. There's a lot of remote devices but this has happened across all our industries and in our hospitals, our consumer electronics and our motor vehicles. We know that there's really software embedded in all of our smart machines and devices. And what we're finding is that as soon as those devices break down, because there's so much software in them that's protected by IP, really we just have no choice but to dispose of them and throw them away. So this incredible amount of e-waste and waste that's been created is really a significant contributor to climate change. If we can work up the product life cycle and keep things out of waste and really repair as a first responder to waste, um, there's a lot of attention and work and funding that goes into recycling, and I don't want to demonise recycling. Recycling's fantastic. But imagine if we could keep even 50% of our products, our e-waste products, out of that recycling and waste stream and actually keep them in use for longer. All of the precious metals that are put into these devices and that are mined could be then reused. And, you know, it essentially repairing our goods creates um, secondary markets for people who can't afford to buy new or who otherwise wouldn't be able to access um, these devices. So I, as I said, I came to um, the what we call the international right to repair movement, and it's recognising that we as consumers, when we buy our products nowadays, we don't have the ability to fix them. And that may be through lack of information about how to fix them, but also availability of spare parts, but also the ability to actually unlock these devices I mentioned farmers and their tractors, and this is where I first came into it. It fascinated to me to learn that along with all the concerns that farmers have around the big collection of data that's happening on their farms now, and often that data is not kept by the farmers on their farm, but actually going up to manufacturers' clouds, um, for example, John Deere, or it might be Case, all of the data from their productivity, their yield is going up into the cloud. So the farmers really don't have access to that. And that really raises issues around food security for Australia. 
but internationally. But a side issue to that that I became impassioned about is the fact that this means that they can't even fix their tractors when they break down. So if all of the data from your tractor or your combine harvester is going up into the cloud and you, you have a hailstorm coming, your grain farmer in Western Australia um, and you need to harvest and your machine breaks down, you have no ability to lift the bonnet, so to speak, on that tractor, make a few changes and keep that machine in operation. Because of all that software, the manufacturers control the information that you need to know what, what it is, is the fault that's wrong. Similar to your phone, you'll get an error message on your phone, but you don't know what's wrong with it. So really coming to the right to repair movement, movement with farmers and agriculture just really made me realise that this issue is kind of really so ubiquitous across all of our industries. It's in consumer electronics and appliances. We all know with our smartphones, if you smash a screen or the battery breaks, it's not easy. Um, you have to go back to Apple. Often people are worried about their warranties um, if they take it to a third-party repairer. And the cost, there's a huge cost as well being tied to manufacturers. So really the right to repair is all about consumers and businesses really getting their ability to have their products, the machines and equipment and vehicles that we own repaired at a competitive price and using a repair of your choice, not being tied and beholden or tethered back to your manufacturer that we know involves a lot of cost. So from working in the right to repair movement, I'm looking at, um, as an IP person, looking at those intellectual property barriers and they're the digital locks that we've got on our machines and devices. But this right to repair issues raises much bigger issues about the way products are being designed and made and manufactured, you know, planned obsolescence. We know that our parents or grandparents' generation would have washing machines that would last 20, 30, 40 years, even fridges. And now we know when we buy our televisions, um, we're lucky to get three or five years out of these devices. Um, and when they fail, it's almost impossible to get them fixed. So they do end up in landfill. So the work that we're doing, and this is really inspirational hearing from Phil, is trying to build a network of stakeholders involved in all of the industries that are encountering barriers to repair. So this ranges from medical devices and assistive technologies like wheelchairs. It involves the motor vehicle industry, but also agricultural um, machinery. It involves cleaning um, industries. Um, they have challenges in getting their um, equipment repaired. It also extends into military and aviation. There's so many, um, as well as all of us as individuals and consumers buying everyday household items and products um, that we aren't able to get repaired. So the work I'm doing is really working with all of those industries, but also there is a really strong grassroots movement where we have in Australia over 104 repair cafes where volunteers come together once a month, sometimes twice a month, and give their time and their, share their skills and knowledge around repair um, and invite people in the community to bring their broken things and get fixed. It's a fantastic groundswell. We have thousands of volunteer repairers um, across all age groups who are able to fix things from toasters to furniture to clothing and mending. Um, and this all really adds to 
things that we can keep out of landfill. And that's really the bottom line. The environmental benefits of keeping our products in use for longer is huge. There's economic benefits in that you don't have to keep replacing your phone or computer every three or, or five years, but also the social benefits of strengthening communities through knowledge and skill sharing about repair. It's becoming a lost art. Our grandparents who came through the 30s and the Depression were very much about make, do and mend. You had to mend your clothes. You had to mend your devices because of the Depression. You didn't have the money to buy new and we've just seen it recently with the COVID period as well in the pandemic. Supply chains broke down globally. And we, we've seen that impact across so many sectors. We, we know in America that there were ventilators that were sitting in hospitals that were broken that could have been used to save people's lives, but they could only be repaired by the authorised manufacturer. And they couldn't get to the machines because of COVID. This, the technicians couldn't get access to the spare parts or information. So these are these are kind of all of the issues that I'm kind of passionate about and trying to work as well with the grassroots community to build, to build their connections, but also to highlight to the government and policymakers that they're really not giving enough attention to the role that repair can play in reducing our waste and, more importantly, climate change. If we continue to focus on waste and recycling, we're losing the opportunity that repair can um, offer to keep those things in use for longer. That's wonderful, Leanne. If you get your way, could people perhaps get out their old iPads and old iPhones and renew them by updating them so that they can use the latest uh, software? Well, that's a really interesting point, Colin. Actually, it's one of the many examples that businesses give. And this is the issue about when you buy products now that are um, smart products, they all have software in them. And we don't, when we buy a physical product, we're not always guaranteed to get the software updates from those manufacturers to keep them in operation. I know I've got a mini iPad at home that I, I just don't even think turns on anymore. <laughs> and so in Australia, um, in 2020, the Productivity Commission actually did the, really it was world leading at the time, a full national inquiry into the barriers to repairability here in Australia. And the Productivity Commission took 12 months, got submissions from, you know, over 250 industry and people, held public consultations and heard all of the difficult difficulties people were having and software updates was one of the ones that was flagged and it makes so many devices obsolete. They released their final report in 2021 and it did recognise that there were significant and unnecessary barriers that we had to repair and one of those was the inability to get access to software updates. So you're right on point, Colin. Um, there is a recommendation sitting with our federal government at the moment that our Copyright Act should be reformed to allow and encourage the sharing of software updates and also other reforms around copyright law to unlock those digital devices that are locked up by um, what we call technological protection measures. Um, they're, they're locks that are put over our DVDs and videos that, you know, um, but now they're basically in every device. And so sometimes you can't even get into the device to work out why it's not working anymore. 
but we know that software updates, and this is a significant industry issue as well, it's not just a consumer issue, that we know that banks and educational institutions are often held ransom to platforms because they can't get the updated um, system so that they can continue. But Leanne, we live in a society, at least the last 50 years or so, which has been celebrating every year if there was economic growth. And politicians celebrate when, ah, it's now 3% economic growth in our country and so on. And they feel that that's what they get elected on. That's the platform that they are going into politics on. So aren't you sort of uh, dismantling that whole theory? Yes, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because GDP is a measure of success of, of most countries. And we know that, I mean, we all know if we're working in the in the climate change arena, we can't continue to grow. And this is one of the major concerns of, of manufacturers is that their sales will drop um, if we continue to use um, things and, and repair them. But I think um, we even see that in the, in the area I work is intellectual property. Um, all of our kind of innovation, for example, is measured in terms of how many patents are registered and how many new forms of intellectual property are registered. What's really important is that intellectual property is about rewarding creators, but there's also a really strong balance to make sure that everyone in the community, the public has access to that innovation and knowledge, and they should be able to use that innovation and knowledge. And I think what we're seeing in this era of growth is that, you know, innovation is great, but there's, is it good innovation? And we ask that our designs and other patents and all of the IP that's being put over our toasters, our kettles, our dishwashers and fridges, is that good innovation that when the, you know, um, your motherboard on your dishwasher breaks down that you have to actually dispose of the huge big metal, you know, appliance into waste because you can't get that little motherboard again. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a significant issue and we we are fighting against very large manufacturers who say, you need to replace, you need to buy new, but this is this drive of consumerism. So it's a, a really big re-education of public of do you need to upgrade your iPhone? Do you need to keep buying new? Um, it's great to see that there is a, a rise in interest in um, secondary markets and vintage clothing for, for the new generations. It's fantastic that vintage now becomes so cool and repair needs to become cool again too. Eliane, have you had any progress, bearing in mind that you're taking on the world's biggest industries? Well, to be honest, Australia has done really well um, last year, and this is probably something that a lot of your listeners may not be aware, but for over a decade our motor vehicle industry has been fighting for fair and open competition about independent car repair. Um, we all know that if we buy a car, we, we really have to take it back to our manufacturer But this issue, as our cars have become smart cars, we know now that you can't just open the bonnet and work out whether you need a particular new part or your oil changes, your oil isn't correct. You'll have to be plugged into the manufacturer's database to, to find out so that the car can talk to the software. Um, what's happened, which was fantastic, um, in 2020 and 2021, Our federal treasurer, Michael Sukar, whose dad was a mechanic, so I think he really understood the challenges um, that we had, 
there was a recognition that the global car manufacturers, look, Australia is a country that doesn't manufacture a lot, but we need to fix a lot of things. And the car industry is really one of those. We have a law in Australia now that's called a mandatory data sharing law. And what's really interesting, it sits in our consumer legislation, our Australian consumer law. But what that really does mean is that it guarantees that independent mechanics, so your local mechanics, can contact a global manufacturer and get access to that software that they need to plug in so that they can find out what's wrong with your VW or your European car. And this is a, a groundbreaking moment because often we we found in all of the inquiries leading up to this legislation that some of our independent mechanics were a couldn't get access to that information or b were having to pay forty or sixty thousand dollars to gain access to the basic information about how you fix a car. So this legislation is really world leading, um, and it's great because our ACCC is actually policing that legislation. So there's fines for companies that do not share their information. So we really hold that as our big success in the right to repair movement because we have a huge um, industry in car repair in Australia and now it's fair and open that independent mechanics can get the same information that the dealer mechanics can get. And that's that's really just opening it from a, a competition law aspect. Thanks for being part of that, Leanne. It, it seems to me it's another aspect of our democracy that's been stolen. Is there much support within the IP academic sphere for what you're doing? Um, yes, there is. There's great support, but there's fantastic support in the design industries, but in also um, a lot of the industries, the software industry recognises it's a problem. So what's great about this movement is that we're working with all of those thousands of repairers in the community who see firsthand what the problems are, why you can't fix a toaster or why you can't fix a kettle. We're working, academics are working together to talk to government and policymakers, but we're also dealing with the industry. So, we, you know, we're talking to the mechanics, we're talking to the software engineers and the biomedical technicians. Um, each year from 2021, um, I've organised an Australian Repair Summit where we come together in Canberra. Um, there is one, our third one is coming up on Friday the 11th of August. We hold it at the National Library. It's a big free event, but we encourage everyone to come along from grassroots repairers, from industry, policymakers, government at all levels, local government from waste, state government who are doing environmental policy um, and federal government who are looking after IP laws, competition laws, consumer laws. It's a multifaceted problem and we really need a response from a range of, of um, government regulators about how to pull the right levers. There's not one solution to this problem and it's like climate change. We need to work across industries, we need to educate people and we need to educate the government about how they can encourage and incentivise repair. We've seen it happen in Europe and the United States and we're really wanting Australia to step up and, and take that role. Um, it's really interesting hearing about your work, Leanne, like really inspiring and cool stuff. I'm always glad my mother was a seamstress and so I learnt to repair my clothes and it is a skill that all my friends are very jealous of. So um, it speaks to me at a, at a real personal level, but also at a systems level. The work that I do um, with computer software and 
and whatnot can be really challenging, particularly in a grassroots um, advocacy setting where there are zero budgets, resources are very um, constrained and whatnot. And, you know, um, as a nerd, I love open source software and the whole project around, you know, making code available so people can actually take it, adapt it and and make it fit to the um, the uses that uh, exist all around. And, you know, like um, so many people are, big fans of tinkering with their own car and whatnot and doing that. And we really need to see that open up across lots of areas because, yeah, repairing things is so important to battling that whole beast of uh, consumerism. But in a totally different point, um, there's this organisation called, well, a company actually, a for-profit company called Change.org that run online petitions. And something you were talking about around intellectual property kind of really like piqued my interest around that. I'm working with a group that shall remain nameless at the moment um, around that. And a a good intention citizen actually set up a Change.org petition. Um, But now Change.org own all of those emails. So a warning to all your listeners Please don't set up change.org petitions. Do a megaphone.org.au if you're in Victoria. But but what that actually means is like change.org have now taken that uh, that really important data property and put it into their global machine and have actually stunted the growth of those grassroots groups. And I think a lot of people are doing that unknowingly um, with the ambiguity of terms and conditions when they sign things. But it's a real worrying like sign around that, particularly around data ownership and the way that that works. Yeah. Certainly data ownership is um, really significant in in a whole range of industries and we're seeing um, it's becoming the most valuable thing, for example, and that's how I came to this on on farm, is that the farmers are are aware of how valuable their agricultural data is and if it's misused, for example, um, there's real, you know, concerns. And we know that all of our profile information individually personally is being collected through all these devices, um, whether it's an Alexa in your home or, um, you know, your food preferences on your fridge, all of that data will be of value to the manufacturers. And so that issue about whether you have access to your data, whether you can delete your data, whether you can take your data from one product to another product are all issues that um, the government's also aware of as well. It strikes me as an outsider that the big companies have got all of the, um, I've got everything sewn up, basically. What have you got that you can threaten them with? Can, can you get your government or our government to say to them, hey, play ball with Leanne or we will stop importing your product? What sort of weapons have you got that you can use? Well, at the moment, we do have all of the wonderful recommendations of the Productivity Commission, and this is what we'll be talking about our our. Australian Repair Summit. But a really good example is something that has been successful in France and the Europeans are now doing it, is a simple product label on our consumer appliances and electronics that when you go to purchase that product, along with perhaps your water and electricity star ratings, that there be a repairability label. So that information is available to consumers at the point of purchase that you can, and these will address issues like, can I buy spare parts for this? Am I able to take it apart? Can I replace the battery? Can I, um, you know, do I get access to repair and service information if I buy this product as opposed to this product? And what the French have found and the Europeans are, are looking at this same 
is that consumers will be better educated and consumers want to make better choices. But at the moment, the manufacturers know everything about your product. I know for a fact, I'm really aware of these issues, but I replaced some external lights on the outside of my house. They look great. I bought them, I put them up. And when they stopped working, I called the electrician and said, well, I just need the know how I can open them up and change the bulb. And he said, what do you mean? You can't replace the bulb. These are sealed. Um, when the lights stop working, you'll have to buy a whole other one. Now, that was something I did not know at the time, and I wouldn't have bought those lights. So there's really simple examples of products that we buy that we're seeing that, for example, all vapes, I mean, what a terrible environmental and health issue. But the issue is that with a lot of single-use vapes, the batteries are integrated, so they can never be taken out. And so when they're disposed of, they go into a, fire, a truck or a, a rubbish truck or a waste, and they'll cause explosions because of the hazardous lithium batteries that are embedded in those products. A lot of people aren't even aware that there are batteries in vapes to begin with. So even all of more information at that point of sale so all manufacturers in France are required to comply with this repairability label and you get a score out of 10 essentially to, as to how repairable and durable your product is. This is something that we really hope that Australia will look at because it's, it was recommended by the Productivity Commission, but it would change not only the behaviour of manufacturers and the way they're designing and manufacturing our goods, but also help educate people when they go to buy them to buy better goods and better quality goods that can be repaired. Can you ever see a time when Apple iPads or Samsung phones will carry your label of this is repairable? Well, I know, for example, that the Nokia G42 and the G22 uh, um, have really taken on board this issue of repairability. So they're they're, those are products that are actually able to be repaired. Um, we're talking about a, a government kind of label that could go on products. Um, Apple has, you know, started some self-repair programs and a lot of the companies are realising that they need to change. But what we're finding is that they're um, making some things available um, but not everything that we need. So this is why we're asking for legislation and a product label would be something that can be mandated that all manufacturers would need to comply with in certain product categories. I know in Europe it's largely around big white, white goods or appliances such as that. Um, it would be great to see that we know there is a, a phone that is fully repairable and that's a fair phone. Um, it's not available in Australia, but as I said, the Nokia G22 and 42 have got repairable aspects to it. So um, there is movement there, which is really positive. This has been an amazing positive hour talking about rest and repairability. And both are radical. Uh, a last word from you, Leanne, and then a last word from you, Phil, and then we're out. Um, again, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to raise awareness. And if anyone's interested in repair, please come and look at the Australian Repair Network. We welcome everyone. Um, we love to get a really strong community movement that we can kind of convince the government to take some action in this space along with industry. Thank you. Phil? Yep. Rest is radical. Take some time out. Stop attacking each other and be kind to others and also yourself. It's a long haul and we're all in this together. So share a little love and stop being so mean. <laughs> <laughs>
now we know how to be the difference. Uh, we just have to flag for repairability and yeah. rest. And in that way, we are actually being radical. So we can still be the difference. Be the difference. Rest and repairability. I like it. <laughs> be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. I know the world's gone mad, it's true. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Watching